Hi, everyone. Welcome back to season three of the Next Academy podcast, where we focus on construction leadership, brand growth, and staying on offense. I'm Cody Phillips, joined as always by my co-host, Western PA NECA Executive Director and Next Academy co-creator, Chad Jones. First, I'd like to thank the 2020 foundational sponsors who power the Next Academy, Graybar, Southwire, Milwaukee Tool, and ABB for their great support. For those of you who are first-time listeners, thank you for joining us. The Next Academy was specifically designed for union construction executives and the unique challenges they face. Next is an intimate 12-month training ground built on four foundational concentrations, enabling leadership, building vibrant organizations, innovation and disruption for a VUCA world, and lastly, negotiating for a better future. It is an empirically-based curriculum, leveraging modern technology to deliver the most user-friendly experience for each participant. The overarching goal of Next is to help. To help each and every participant, each of our contractors become more sustainable and profitable long into the future. The feedback from our participants has been overwhelmingly positive, and I encourage you to consider walking alongside your peers on this leadership journey. We've now had over 150 electrical and mechanical contracting companies and over 300 participants from California to Boston and everywhere in between. To learn more, I encourage you to check out our website, www.nextleadershipacademy.org. Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Put that coffee down. Oh, have I got your attention now? I got your attention now. What's up, buddy? I'm not ready. <laughs> Do you have cold feet in the chair right now? No. No, I just didn't know we were getting right into it. I thought there was like a bigger intro. <laughs> well, there I is I time. I, I mean, there is going to be a bigger intro. Right. I'm just going to say, what's up, buddy? And then you can say, hey, man, how you doing? All right. What's up, buddy? Hey, man, how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> no, give me a second. You're going to ask me about some thoughts? <laughs> I am going to ask you about what's new in your world. Yeah. All right. Start over. What's up, buddy? How's it going? Good. Good. Got uh, an interesting couple weeks upon us. I would say so. So today we are going to talk about a book that's been deemed the Essential Leadership Playbook. I apologize if you are hearing a old radiator or radiator, if you're from West Virginia, uh, in the background. Um, I'm not sure what's going on right now. But it just sounds like a bomb's getting ready just, to go off. <laughs> we're okay. Know that. Um, yeah, Essential Leadership Playbook. For the past five years, uh, David Rubenstein. Rubenstein, Chad, or Rubenstein? Um, I think it's David Rubenstein. David Rubenstein. He's author of The American Story visionary co-founder of the Carlisle Group and host of the David Rubenstein Show, has spoken with the world's 
highest performing leaders about who they are and how they became successful. How to Lead distills these revealing conversations into an indispensable leadership guidebook. This will allow you to learn the principles and guiding philosophies of the likes of Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Warren Buffett, Oprah Winfrey, and many others uh, through illuminating conversations about their remarkable lives and careers. My general observation is that I really enjoyed this book. If you look back at past episodes, I've, I've been down on a few of the books uh, that we read recently, but I really did enjoy this book. I love the format, uh, the short form interview style. I don't believe, you know, after thinking back, I don't believe I've read a book like this. And I surprisingly really liked the way in which it was written. Obviously, it helps when the interviewees are some of the brightest minds in the world. But I highly recommend this book. Um, you can gain obviously valuable advice and wisdom from CEOs, presidents, founders, and master performers from the worlds of finance, tech, entertainment, sports, government, and many others. So I highly recommend it. Um, I know, Chad, that you're going to touch on some highlights from a few of these leaders, um, but really how to lead shares extraordinary stories of these pioneering agents of change um, and allows you to discover how each luminary got started and how they handled decision-making Many of them talk about failure, innovation, change, and crisis. Uh, You get to learn from decades of experience as uh, pioneers in, in their individual fields. And what I learned was that no two leaders are really the same. So, Chad, your opportunity to chime in here. What's new in your world? And, you know, what are your general thoughts on the book? Well, what's what's new in my world is probably what's new in everybody else's world, much of the same. Um, <laughs> chaos, trying to navigate the, uh, the pandemic and different scenarios and situations that come into um, play every day regarding uh, the pandemic and how it affects work and uh, how it affects your way of life, managing that like much of the rest of the world. Uh, on top of that, obviously, you have the election coming up here on Tuesday, um, and obviously, listen, Cody and I don't get involved in in arguing candidate sides or, or points of views or anything like that, but it's impossible not to pay attention to how people communicate with one another. And this particular election, the two candidates in both of their camps, in my opinion, have, um, they don't communicate well with one another, um, either side. And that forces a lot of people in, um, in the public in and around the country to not communicate very well. I think there's some lessons that will come out uh, for some of the characters in this book that maybe call attention to that lack of communication. And I was counting yesterday, I was having a conversation with two, two different people who were behind two different sides of each candidate. And both 
told me what was going to happen in 2021 um, with their candidate. Crystal and ball. Crystal ball. And that's what immediately what I thought of. I said, man, we talk all the time about creating a false narrative. It's a, it's a prime example. Um, be careful not to let your emotions create a false narrative for either candidate, whether you're for them or against them. You really don't know what they're going to do um, once they get in office or come election day. You don't know what the next four years hold. One thing I can tell you that's kind of scary is a lot of presidents have a plan for their four years, and some world event happens that hijacks that plan. We've seen that throughout history. So it's very difficult to sit back and, and create a false narrative for what you think is going to happen next year. But it seems like a lot of people have an idea for either candidate as to what's going to happen. I can tell you this. There'll be a president. That's right. <laughs> and there'll be a lot of people that uh, complain about it, and that that seems to be <laughs> pretty consistent. That's uh, what's going on in my world. But I, I think uh, I think a lot of the uh, the folks that we're going to talk about in this book, and um, some of the some of the uh, lessons that they've learned. And again, I came across this book in the Wall Street Journal. Actually, I was reading the journal and I saw an advertisement for this uh, particular book and said, "Man, that that might be a good one to dive into since they do do the interview style and you're able to cover a lot of ground with a lot of different interesting personalities. Well, I just thought it was a really cool book. And I mean, any time that you have an opportunity to learn from some of these all-time great leaders in, in their various fields is uh, a really cool opportunity. And, you know, what I learned uh, is leaders have a willingness to be a leader. And I've said this before, but no matter your title, it's my opinion that leadership is not about rank or authority. It's about taking responsibility for yourself and the people around you. And anybody on any team at any level can be a leader, but first you have to choose to be. And I say this all the time with our next Academy participants, but you know, they have taken that critical first step towards leadership by entering our year-long academy and really raising their hands and saying that they want to be better, that they want to be a leader. A couple takeaways, you know, initially before we dive into the individuals is that it was clear throughout this book that you have to have integrity, that you have to have, in my view, humility. Obviously, there are always exceptions but you have to have some humility. Uh, you have to have the ability to persuade people. You have to have the ability to fail and learn how to fail. Most of the people written about in this book are people who have failed somewhere along the line, but yet they've been persistent to get where they are. They figured out how to make themselves an expert in some way. I saw that keep coming back. You know, once you're an expert in one thing, other things flow to you. And then people say, well, you're good at A, I'll see if you're good at B. And if you're good at B, I'll see if you're good at C. And you get more and more opportunities and more and more power that way. So that's one piece of advice. Whatever you're in, whatever you have passion for, see if you can become an expert in that field. You'd be surprised how power rises relatively quickly and word spreads. Well, and you talk about failure, and I think it's important. I mean, I wish young children, especially school age and elementary school, could spend more time on, on some real-life leadership guys and girls in the business community and folks that, that, um, that have overcome so much because what they're going to see is that 
they all have these setbacks. They all have these these problems or these failures. It's their ability to overcome them. And you'll hear a young person or even an adult complain about, you know, I'm not good at this or I'm not good at that or I need help in this or I need help in that. And it's these individuals that we're going to talk about today are no different. Um, many of them had learning disabilities. A lot of them had other issues um, socially. And But the reality is, is that for whatever reason, um, their pursuit of where they were going um, was unwavering and they and they got there. So I think it's important for people to realize in general that you don't have to be perfect at everything and you, you can make mistakes and you might not be, um, you might not consider yourself the smartest person in the room at any given time and all that's fine. It has nothing to do uh, really with whether or not you're going to be an ultimate success. Yeah, some of the practices and themes that I pulled from this book that almost all of these leaders share um, that I think may help some of you listening today. One that I loved was from former U.S. Secretary of State Jim Baker. And he has a phrase that his father drilled into him that I think is pretty good. His father said, prior preparation prevents poor performance. The five Ps. Prior preparation prevents poor performance. Always be prepared. Always make sure that you know what you're talking about. It really showed me, you know, and I think we all have this in our history. Giving a presentation is a really good example. You know, good leaders prepare and they know what they're talking about. Also, good CEOs and good leaders are intellectually curious. They're always learning. They're always willing to stretch, to ask those good questions, those, those curious questions. And one thing Oprah said in the book that I found interesting was she said, I'm not such a great interviewer. I'm a great listener. And so the, the overarching themes that I found that kept coming back were listening, intellectual curiosity, preparation, and lastly, but certainly not least, it comes back to good old-fashioned hard work. You know, nobody really wants to admit it, but the truth is nobody became rich. Nobody became famous. Nobody came, became successful working the nine to five, five days a week. You have to really be working the nights and the weekends, and you just have to make yourself so dedicated to what you're building and doing that you really are for a long time blocking other things out. And I know some of you out there will push back against that, but there has to be a level of obsession to reach unprecedented heights. As I mentioned recently on Monday Morning Mastery, it simply takes what it takes to be great. Throughout your day, throughout today, you're going to have hundreds of choices to consider. And you will have the freedom to decide. But understand that if you're truly chasing greatness, many of those perceived choices are already made for you. It takes a rare level of discipline to achieve your goals and dreams. If you haven't found that out yet, 
your dreams probably aren't big enough. But the key to everything is loving what you do. If you don't love it, you won't get very far. And as the book says, and a line that I absolutely love, nobody won a Nobel Prize hating what they do. <laughs> That's a really good point. Um, I'm going to have a general comment about a couple. There are a lot, like Cody mentioned, there's a lot of personalities in this book. We're not going to we're not going to tear apart each one fundamentally, but a couple just pull away your comments from each of them and, and takeaways and. They break the book down into visionaries, transformers, commanders, decision makers, and masters. And there's a whole group of people underneath those. I, I just picked one from each group. Um, under the visionaries, I picked Sir, Sir Richard Branson, the founder of Virgin Group. And um, what jumped out to me about him was this like carefree, um, dogged determination. This is a guy that could probably care less about a spreadsheet predicting his business um, Richard is this guy who sells an enjoyable lifestyle. Sure. And, uh, what jumped out to me is he's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a young man who dropped out of school at 15. He had severe dyslexia, and um, he had little money when he started. I mean, everything stacked against him if he wants to put his head in the tank. But he, 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 was, uh, he had a dogged work ethic, and he, he loved the entrepreneurial spirit. But one of the things... The stories I loved about um, Richard Branson, and you kind of say, like, you know, how does someone get into these things? Well, a guy like Richard just does it. He doesn't listen to the the charts or the sheets that say, well, here's why this isn't a good business to get into. Um, he was trying to get from Puerto Rico to the Virgin Islands um, when he was 28 years old to see a girl. That's a great and, story. I loved it. And the, yeah. and the, the, the flight gets canceled. Um, one, of the, one of the things that's really funny is they said, why the Virgin Islands? He just liked the name Virgin Islands. Um, you know, I think Richard is a party guy. So he was heading down there to see a girl and they bump this flight and he decides that he's going to, he walks to the end of the airport and he wants to see this girl so bad. Absolutely. And he sees this plane and he says, all right, I'm going to rent that old plane over there. There was a, there was a jet that was on the end of the runway and he said, I'm going to rent that plane. And he hoped that his credit card didn't bounce in the process and then he walked back to the gate where the flight had just been canceled and held up a sign, um, Virgin Airlines, one way, $39 to BVI. And he filled up that plane with people. And uh, that was it. And he, he, he and Virgin Airlines was born. And there it was. And so you sit there and you say, like, you know, how does somebody get there? They, uh, some of it is just purely carefree, um, dogged determination to do something. And um, certainly as an entrepreneurial spirit. But I mean, it's a kind. Of, it's a really, it's a really interesting story that I think separates an entrepreneur from somebody running a company. And I think you see it throughout history. Um, I see Tim Cook at Apple as an incredible CEO and the great manager, a great manager of an unbelievably successful company. Steve Jobs was an entrepreneur. He he didn't. He didn't look at spreadsheets. He was more of an artist. Richard Branson's the same way. And lots of times when you look at the founder or the person that created the company, they're less concerned with quarterly earnings and just purely concerned about their product becoming something. Mm -hmm. And so they make decisions that maybe a financial person or a COO would say, well, here's why we don't want to do that, and it's going to hurt us here, 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 and here. And they see the financial future of every decision. 
where lots of times that entrepreneur is like, oh, I don't care. I just want my product on the shelf. Yeah. Yeah. Gary V, our, our boy, Gary Vanderchuk, he always says that like, if, if you're a real entrepreneur, like the, the lemonade stand card slinging young kid, like it's in your blood and like, you can't do anything else. Literally, right. you can't work for other people. Like it's just, it's gotta be, uh, it's gotta be your way. And um, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And and one thing Branson said that I, that I loved is that that um, the author asked him, you know, what makes great leadership in your view? And he said, being a good listener and loving people. And honestly, I wasn't expecting that, but I. I loved the response. And he said, when I sit around listening to the elders talk in meetings, I realize they've become elders because they spent their lifetime listening and absorbing and then only speaking by choosing their words carefully. Another key thing is loving people, a genuine love of everybody and looking for the best in people. And I just that is Richard Branson. And I just, I'd never heard the question answered that way. And I loved it. Um, in the conversation with Oprah, she thought that her power came from the fact that deep inside her, she knows herself to be no different than the audience. Um, it's an observation that the greatest leaders are people that are humble because they recognize that to your point about Branson, that they had a lot of luck. And if one thing had gone the wrong way or another way, uh, they could be an average Joe again. And leaders that brag about how great they are deep down recognize that they're not that great. And they feel they have to brag about it because otherwise nobody will tell them how great they are. And I'm sure you can think of multiple examples of people you know that are like that. In Oprah's case, you know, I think she's always pinching herself saying, hey, I was basically born with nothing. And I mean, she had an outhouse, no electricity, abandoned by her mother, you know, basically ignored by her father for, for a really long time. And she winds up literally as the voice yeah, at least pretty. of my childhood, and is still making such a huge impact. So I just think she's a great example of, of uh, an exceptional leader with great humility. She is. And I mean, for those of you out there that are involved in any type of negotiating or collective bargaining as, as we are, um, there's probably not a... If you took all of these people, and I know a lot of them are, are great deal makers. I would argue Oprah probably has some of the best negotiating skills of any of them because if you think about what she does, she has somebody on a stage in front of millions of people and she has to keep the conversation going. She has to keep them talking. And, and in doing so, she, has, she listens intently. And that's the only thing that keeps the conversation going, really. She knows what to ask next. But if you think about negotiations, it, those are key skills. If you can keep the other party talking... That's just more information that you're gathering. But the only way you can keep them talking is that they know that you care about what they're saying. And the only way you can do that is to listen intensely so that you can keep that, that confirmation and flow of information coming. One of my favorite takeaways from the book and something that you may try as a leader within your organization was from former 
Pepsi Company CEO Indra Nui. And I just want to bring it to light because I thought it was super interesting. And if you never read the book, um, it still may be something that you want to try. But she actually sends notes to the parents of her direct reports. Um, she developed a habit of writing little kind of report cards to the parents of her senior employees. I'd never have heard this done, but uh, she would write a letter to the parent saying, your, your son is doing a very good job or your daughter's done a wonderful job for us here at Pepsi. Um, you know, here's what they've done well. And, you know, I got to thinking there's nothing that's going to endear a parent to a CEO more than getting a letter that's favorable. But also, as an employee, you know, I think that really endeared her to them. And so it's just a cool little tidbit that I never heard that may be something that you may want to try to incorporate into your strategy as a leader. I had written a note in the book, Culture, because that's what I thought of when I read this person's interview, it was Eric Schmidt, the former chairman and of Google and um, Alphabet companies. And it, for me, it was really about the environment that they created at Google. And as I'm reading it, it's kind of interesting. Like, obviously, Google's turned into um, a massive tech company, super, or super successful. Um, I'm sure everyone's seen the movie Intern with, uh, who was it, Vince Vaughn and uh, Owen, Wilson. Owen Wilson. But but one of the things that they talk about at Google uh, on the early stage was dress code. And people could kind of dress however they wanted. So long as they had clothes on, it was acceptable. It really didn't matter what they were wearing bring your pet to uh, work day. And, and of course, they're, they're forever known for the free food um, that, that was served there. And this environment of the free food part came from um, a huge desire for the employees to basically sit down and eat together, um, to not necessarily have to go off campus in silos and eat privately, but the, the, the continuing of sharing of ideas over food. It was about continuity and trying to bring smart. a family approach in. Yeah, I thought it was super smart. So I wrote culture next to it. They also had something called 20, 20% time where 20% of their day, they were able to work on something they were passionate about, might not have anything to do with Google, could be their own project. Um, it was something like that. I also had read separate from Eric Schmidt, wasn't even in this book, but something on high performers. They, that um, a huge study was done that showed that high performers take a break every 45 minutes, um, which I thought was super interesting. I think some people see high performers as these engines that never stop. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because the science tells you that that's not the case at all. Yeah. <laughs> but the culture around Eric Schmidt and what they did there, I also couldn't help but think of what's going on right now. Like, um, man, that's a super good example of how this company um, helped its employees, some of the smartest and most talented um, folks in the world, but helped them communicate better and create a culture. And so what, what does that look like today in the pandemic world? And I've got some real mixed theories on what's going on right now. I think that the remote workforce is a great thing, and I think it's a useful tool. I have some serious questions about uh, what that looks like in the future. And I think some people are thinking this is it, that's the end of the office. I don't think that's the case at all. I think it's a hybrid. And I really question how companies like Google would have formed a culture had they have not had at least a start of the group coming together before dispersing to remote work. 
Yeah, I think the immediate response was, oh, this is great. We can do this. We can pull this off. This is going to be fantastic. I think the reality for a lot of companies right now is this isn't going to work for everybody um, and that we're going to have to get back into the office because a lot of the, uh, especially companies that are, you know, have a great deal of ingenuity and are inventing product. And I mean, a lot of those conversations happen at the lunch table or happen in the hallway or happen at the water cooler, you know, and you're just missing all of that. Absolutely. I mean, we were just talking about the NECA National Convention and um, kudos to the National Electrical Contractors Association because they really stepped out and went above and beyond to drive the organization into technology. And they did a nice job on a year which most associations canceled any type of convention they recognize the fact that, okay, we can't meet in person, but we can still have a convention. They pulled it off virtually. Yeah. And, and, and they did a great job in talking about, you know, people said, well, what did you think of it? I thought they did a really good job delivering that. I think the one thing that they would admit that we all know is, man, it's going to be really cool when it comes back in person because you simply can't replace social interaction. And what happens in between those meetings is as valuable as the meeting itself. What you learn from your peers simply in talking or asking a question or in the hallway on the way to an educational course, it it becomes invaluable, which is why I think humans are driven um, to be in person and to communicate that way. Before we wrap up here, a couple more things for me, and I'm going to toot your horn here a little bit, but one of the key themes that I see interwoven throughout this book and something that you've been hammering on for as long as I've known you is this notion of rising to the occasion, which is to say you might have all of these skills, but do you rise to the occasion of a moment and really become the leader you're meant to be? You know, that's when leaders are really tested and clearly in the COVID crisis and where we are right now as a society, leaders have never been tested the way that you currently are. So I hate to admit it, (laughs) but this book was yet another example of your theory of Really, it only matters when it matters. Well, you know, I hit on that. I, I hit on that a lot. I'm glad you. I'm glad you gave me that credit there, probably undeservingly, but I do believe that because I think everyone has and possesses leadership skills. I really do. I think everyone does. So I think it's a funny thing when people think, "What's it take to be a leader?" Every single person um, possesses those skills, um, from people that you see in the food store to the post office. They all possess them. The question is, is do they put them into action when the moment's in front of them. And that goes from everyone from a fifth grader all the way up to um, heads of state. Um, I, that's, that's the crucial thing. You could have, um, you know, a Wharton business degree or a Harvard business school degree, and all those lessons in the world don't matter if when the moment's there, you don't apply it. When we started the show, you said what was going on in my world, and I touched a little bit on, well, you, you can't avoid the fact that Tuesday's election day, right? And obviously, Cody and I um, are, we're, this is a bipartisan podcast. We don't get into that, those parts <laughs> of politics. We're talking about um, leadership um, skills and the pursuit of leadership. But in doing so, the book does 
have a section, and it's a joint interview that really jumped out of me because it was a joint interview with President George W. Bush and President Bill Clinton. And of course, reading those in these times, it was super interesting to listen to these two guys talk together and admit that that they were political opponents, um, but that there was a mutual respect for one another and, and for what they do. And I mean, they fundamentally disagreed on a lot of things, obviously, from a legislative perspective. Um, but it, it didn't mean that just because they disagreed um, that they couldn't be friends. And, and they're actually very good friends. And there's, there's two examples of that. And I kind of say this to people ahead of this particular election day that I think it's really important. Um, so what jumped out at me was President Bush and President Clinton's friendship outside of their political differences. And the other one was RBG, the notorious RBG, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, Justice Scalia. Two polar opposite views um, from start to finish, black and white. And yet they were the closest of friends. And the book talks about that friendship. And again, if you're in the world that we're in, um, disagreement's something that happens a lot. Ruth uh, Bader Ginsburg said something in her section that really jumped out to me. She said, people have, uh, the, the question that was asked was, Today, many people think that the court is very political, that people appointed to the court by Democratic presidents and those appointed by Republican presidents tend to follow their political desires. Um, do you think that's a fair assessment? And she answered, people have that view because agreement isn't interesting. Disagreement is. So she talks about people tend to just focus on the disagreement. But what she basically points out is um, when you look at the totality of cases that come before them, they agree more often than they sharply disagree. Um, I mean, huge percentage more agreement than disagreement. So I think it's important to realize that you have to be able to disagree and also have a relationship with somebody, create alliances with people. And in our world, certainly in labor relations, um, there's, there's enough disagreement to go around, but at no time should that disagreement filter into an inability to communicate. Well said. At the end of the day, the book is called How to Lead. I think you lead by first wanting to lead, by preparing to lead, by whether that be having made a mistake, by persisting but also by having a vision of where you want to go to take people certain places. You have to have a drive. You can't be a leader with no drive and no vision. You can't take somebody somewhere if you have no vision of where you're going. We hope that you found great value in today's episode. Um, and look forward to hearing your comments and uh, wish you all the best moving forward here over the next couple weeks. Regardless of what happens between now and the end of the year, politically or with the pandemic, just rest assured the sun will come up and you will be expected to perform. Ow. Oh, Father, tell me, do we get what we Deserve. Oh, we get what we deserve. 
And we're down. <laughs>